for another Physio DC podcast. We have a special treat for you today. We're here with Dr. Wolf. He is um, a physician here in the Washington DC area who specializes in the hip. He's devoted his practice for about the past four years exclusively to the hip. He works at Washington Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. He's been there since 2008. He's widely recognized as a leader in the field of hip arthroscopy and preservation. He regu regularly publishes in orthopedic literature and speaks internationally on the topic. And we are incredibly lucky to have him here today. So thank you, Dr. Wolf, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're going to start talking about some of the basics in the hip. If you could just kind of briefly give uh, the people listening to this um, an introductory lesson to what femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI for short, is. Sure. So um, basically, if we think about the hip as a ball that fits into a socket, sometimes the ball and socket aren't a perfect match. And so impingement is when that match uh, isn't, when the ball and socket don't quite match up. And so it can either be from the ball side, which is called cam type impingement, where the ball isn't quite round or has a bump on it or is sort of oblong in shape. Um, or it can be from the socket side, which is called the acetabulum, and uh, in which case it can be sort of sticking out too far or too deep in one area. Um, and so, and, and a lot of times there will be some elements of both in any particular patient, and that can set people up for getting uh, tears in the labrum, which is a cartilage ring that goes around the hip joint. Um, it can also particularly in cam type impingement, which is from the ball side, it can also lead to, uh, it's one of the main causes of getting uh, arthritis in your hip. Now, for somebody listening, how would they know, or like if they suspected they might have one of these things, what are some of the symptoms they would experience? So when people have symptoms from femoracetabular impingement uh, or labral tears or, or something from their hip, we're, we're typically... Uh, manifests itself is in the groin and so sort of deep in their uh, deep in their hip and and we'll say uh, what we in the hip world will call it as a C sign so people will make a, uh, a shape uh, with their hand that looks like a C and then they'll say it's somewhere deep in there I can't really put my finger on it but it's somewhere they'll just grab the side of their hip and they'll say sometimes it's in it's somewhere in the middle there and that's that's sort of the classic thing now what makes the hip interesting and challenging for uh, those of us who treat it is that uh, it, the, the symptoms will vary so much from person to person and even within a person. And sometimes it'll show up as a recurrent um, groin strain or in runners we'll see a lot of hamstr uh, hamstring issues. Um, sometimes it'll hurt more on the side. Sometimes it'll hurt more in the front. And in any one person, it may hurt variably in any of those places. Um, uh, and so it, it's a it's a complicated joint where there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts and stuff around it that uh, can cause cause lots of different types of symptoms. Are the symptoms generally do they come quickly? Like, is it a rapid onset usually, or are these types of things something that come on slowly over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, what I'll see is a lot of people in the office with 
who come in and they say, I have a labral tear, and they say, I don't know where this came from. Um, and it's not, because when people think of things being torn, like when we see like ACL tears or tears in, you know, an Achilles tendon or something, people, it's not really subtle where those came from. It was a specific, they know. yeah, they know. They know if they tore that. Yeah, it's a specific yeah. injury. And actually, it's probably more like 10% of them are specific injuries in the hip. And so usually these things, um, present as what we call insidiously, meaning they'll just show one day they didn't have pain and the next day they did. Okay. And then it'll sort of gradually, gradually get worse until they seek treatment for it. And, and then, um, but it's always a question of, I don't know, how, how did I possibly tear this? And, and really it's because most of the time, nine times out of 10, it's going to be because they do have an underlying structural problem with the way the bones are shaped like impingement or something of that nature. Is there a certain kind of history of sports or activity or athletic population that you see this with more than others? It's a it's a good question. So I think there's a chicken and egg problem to mm-hmm. it because um, certainly with more and more use, you'll see um, you'll see more tears and more symptomatic tears, and and also when people push themselves harder, they're more likely to develop injuries, and so it does become. Uh, sort of a circular issue um and to make it even more complicated we know that that kids who play a lot of repetitive sports when they're growing up when they're when their um growth plates are closing sort of between the ages of 13 and 18 or whatever that's when we see the impingement actually develop and and Mm -hmm. there's a definite link that's probably causative uh between these sort of repetitive sports um and the way these kids' hips develop. And so, for instance, like, yeah, so for instance, like in hockey, ice hockey goalies, where I'll see a lot of that, they will have a very characteristic shape to their hips because they're always getting down into that weird butterfly position over and over and over again while their growth plates are closing. And so the hip sort of responds to that. Um, the other population I see a lot of is is ballet dancers, and they have sort of, they also have hip issues, but they're, their hips develop totally differently um and they look look nothing like the goalie ice hockey goalie hips um but they also will have a high rate of of hip issues so you can kind of pick up their childhood sport based on x-ray or to a certain degree yeah 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 very interesting um so do you confirm your diagnosis then with a certain type of like do you do an mri or do you do clinical tests or how do you generally confirm your diagnosis yeah generally speaking i mean it just it depends on you know sort of what they've been through and what they've had done and and whatnot i think that you know if somebody has if but if somebody's been having hip pain for a while you definitely have to get an x-ray and then depending on what that shows very often we'll get an mri and and uh um, because MRI lets us see sort of the soft tissues where x-ray gives us a really great picture of the bones, the, uh, which gives us sort of an idea of their underlying, you know, what are the things that, that might be the cause of this, uh, this hip pain that they're having. And it sort of rules out some of the other more drastic things. Um, MRI gives us a really sort of granular detail of what's going on with all the soft tissues in there in addition to the bones and sort of what it is that actually might be hurting, um, and also helps us not miss sort of the weird, you know, one in a thousand yeah. type things that happen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are you, now when you see that and if you diagnose somebody with a labral tear, 
Are you immediately thinking surgery or what's your thought process in terms of treatment at that point? Yeah, that's a great question because that, I'll see a lot of that too where people will say, well, I have a labral tear mm -hmm. on my hip. I have to get it fixed. Well, that's actually totally not true because we know that the, the more that people will... Um, the more that people age, the more we'll see labral tears in, just in the population. And so it really depends mostly on their symptoms. Now, um, so just because it's torn doesn't mean you do have to fix it. So it's not like, in that regards, it's not like an ACL tear where if it's torn and you want to go back and play basketball, you probably are better, way, way better off fixing it than not. Um, and so a lot of times we'll try to get you know, athletes through their season and, and sort of fit this into their lives because it is sort of a big recovery period if they need to. But a lot of times, you know, we can manage these things, particularly it's been a short-lived um, short symptoms, like they haven't had pain for very long. We'll try physical therapy and that will work very, very well. And because a lot of the a lot of times it's the sort of the, the stuff outside the hip that bothers them, you know, it'll be their... Um, it'll be the, the tendons or whatever, the muscles around their hip that'll bother them, that, that you guys are awesome at taking care of. And so we have, um, and, and if that's where, you know, 90% of their symptoms are coming from, and we can keep those under control, then, yeah. then lots of times we don't have to do any surgery on these people. Yeah, and I think from a physical therapy point of view, when we get people knowing they have a labral tear, often you'll see the supporting musculature in that area just shut down, so they're not functioning well. Right. So even if you teach them some exercises just to provide some basic support through their glutes and then progress from there and work on you know, some very functional movements using the appropriate muscles, there's a lot of um, a lot of symptomatic relief that can occur. Now, granted, they might not be able to go back to the highest level of sport, or they might still be looking at surgery down the road. But at least, uh, like Dr. Wolf said, to get them through the season or to get them, you know, to run the race they want to, or whatever it might be, um, we do see a lot of success with uh, in physical therapy um, with conservative treatment on that. You know, I absolutely agree, and and actually, like I actually think that people have to sort of prove that they're not going to do well with therapy, particularly these people like we'll see a lot of, um, as I'm sure you see as well, a lot of people with sort of um, loose joints or they're mm -hmm. hypermobile and, mm -hmm. and they just have a hard time with their movement patterns and holding things stable and, and one thing will pop up and the next thing and you sort of have this whack-a-mole type of uh, process with this and, and if we can sort of get them to be, to do the right movement patterns and get them strong and get their, get their um, uh, hip oriented in the right space for their sport uh, or exercise, then, then they can do fine and they can tolerate their labral tear and not ever have to fix it, which is great too. Well, that's good news. Yeah. <laughs> now, if that's the case and you're knowingly letting somebody return to their high level of sport with a labral tear, are you concerned about the joint down the road in terms of early onset of arthritis or something else maybe compensating and wear and tear in another joint? Yeah, it's a good, that's a really good question. So, you know, we'll see this, we'll see this a lot and it, it just depends on really not more as, as much their labral tear as it depends on how, uh, how much impingement they have. Okay. Um, and so, so particularly in young and young male athletes will see a lot of the cam type impingement mm -hmm. where really it's like a square ball into a round socket. Mm -hmm. And we know that those hips wear out really, really fast sometimes. And yeah. so, you know, you'll see kids come in who are 
you know, 27 years old and they'll, they'll have played college basketball or something and they'll mm-hmm. need, and you'll say, I can't do anything to help you anymore. You need a hip replacement oh and, my gosh. And because they've just sort of worn it down. And so those are the people who I'm a little bit less, where I'm a little bit more aggressive to say, you know what, find a downtime in your off season and we'll fix Let's this because be, I don't want you to show up yeah. in five years and be, have, have a, um, and have bad arthritis. And so, you know, you have to tailor it based on, you know, how much, if they have really bad cam type impingement, then mm-hmm. we want to be a little bit probably more aggressive with them surgically uh, in terms of just fixing that and, and sort of setting them up for a better long-term success. And then, um, and then uh, also people who are already starting to have car- articular cartilage damage or early arthritis, those people, we want to really talk to them about, all right, how important is it that you you know, do all these impact activities. Well, it's one thing if it's your career. It's another thing if you're like, all right, well, I could just easily switch from running 30 miles a week to biking or swimming more and running less. And and maybe that's a conversation that needs to be had with some of them too. And um, to sort of optimize what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you do, well, I guess two questions. If you're, when you do operate on somebody, I mean, is there always a pretty significant amount of bony work that you do in terms of kind of reconfiguring the joint to improve joint congruency? And then the second question, different, um, when you, after surgery, what is the expected rehab time? Yeah, so I think that, uh, I would say that in probably 95% of my patients, there is some component of bone work that we'll do. and and. The, the thought process behind that is, um, like I said before, most of these things aren't from a specific injury. It's mm-hmm. from sort of a gradual um, wear and tear, and there's some mismatch going on between how they're made and what, they're, and what their hip's able mm-hmm. to tolerate. And usually that does have a bone, or is likely to have a bony sort of um, cause and we know that by sort of fixing that you're getting to the root of the problem mm-hmm. too and so i think you give them a much better chance of long-term success if you can fix their underlying cause and it really doesn't slow down their rehab uh in any real meaningful way um because the rehab regardless of what we do is slow and yes. and that's really the that's really the frustrating part for people with this is not so much that the surgery is a big deal to go through because it's outpatient you know it's going to take an hour or two or three and um and they're going to go home they're going to have two or three little incisions on the side of their hip and usually i would say my patients will on average use pain medicine for a day or two but it won't be weeks and weeks and it's not super painful until you get to you know six or eight weeks or three months or four months down the road and they say how come i'm not all the way better yet and it's really more psychologically tough for people. Why did I do the surgery? Why did I, I, feel the sa- I feel the same yeah. as I did before. Right, yeah. right. I'm six weeks out yeah. and I, should I be still fine. feel worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it just takes a long time, yeah. as you know, to, to sort of, to get all these, all these, get the hip to calm down and yeah. then get all the secondary yeah. muscles to, to start waking up and, and behaving and, uh, and then, and then strengthening and, and so, and then gradually returning to sports. So some of the some of the you know the super superstar athletes who you know are um, genetically superior to uh, at least me probably not you but yeah, at least me. absolutely yeah. me yes <laughs> um, well they'll get back in you know three months or four months to yeah. you know professional level sports whereas really f- 
for most people, we try to tell them, look, it's going to take you six months. And yeah. for people in their forties and whatnot, we'll, mm -hmm. the, I'll, I'll say, you know, you're going to really, it's going to take you six months, but you're really going to probably improve for over two years. Yeah. And so they'll get to a pretty good spot by yeah. six months. We're not really worried about them. But if you look at, we, we pay real close attention to everybody's, um, we make them fill out, um, forms uh, with these sort of scores of, of their pain levels and, and, and what their activity levels are and what their um, dysfunction levels are and whatever. And, and they'll be pretty good at six months. They'll be really good at a year, but then they'll be a, a little bit better at two years, two actually. Years, yeah. yeah. So it takes, it's a long process. No, and I so appreciate uh, like hearing that from the physician because so many patients come from doctors who might not tell them the whole long-term story. And I really do think, you know, I tell my patients two years, like, yeah. and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be good. You're going to be really good at a year, right. but you're going to still notice that you had surgery right. for two years. So I think, and also hearing that from the doctor is so important too because often the expectations are just maybe not set appropriately going into surgery so and you know people do come out like you said with three little holes or two you know just a few yeah. little holes it doesn't it's amazing how much work is done in right. the hip during the surgical procedure that patients just don't perceive because what they see externally is is really quite small um, so, so hearing that from the surgeon is, is definitely helpful in the rehab process too. Right. Yeah. No, it's a sort of a big surgery through little holes and, and, mm -hmm. and it's a lot, you know, and most of these people have had, you know, six months plus of, of problems. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they're sort of in a big hole that their body needs to dig out of and then reaccommodate to like the new, the new improved <laughs> mechanics and then. Yeah. Um, which yeah. incorporates the whole system. Yeah. The other hip, the back, the knee, right. you know, it's like the whole body's learning how to remove, how to move again. Right. Exactly. And, 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 you know, having, you know, the, 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 the sort of the people understand that, all right, yeah, like you said, it's going to be pretty good after a little while, mm -hmm. but then it won't feel totally natural for a while, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's, it's such and a that's weight bearing joint. Yeah, right. Everything right. kind of stems from there. Um, I guess also, like, in, I, you know, my career as a physical therapist for, like, 17 years, the hip labral repair, like, the surgery didn't, maybe was just starting to come about, what, 20 Less, years, yeah, 15 more like years 10, ago, yeah, yeah 10 yeah. years, so there's been huge changes, and I guess from a surgical point of view, kind of what changes have you seen, kind of what are the current trends, and what do you see down the pipeline yeah that's a good question and, and it is really it's interesting to be part of this uh part of this field and, and one of the sort of main reasons that that i my background was i, I did a orthopedic res surgery residency and then i did a fellowship in sports medicine where we did um hips but also did a lot of shoulders and knees and when i started practice i did all three of those and then over the last you know four or five years i've done I've just switched just doing hips and uh, have had um, just because it's 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 really coincided with um, the time where we've really been able to give people people meaningful treatments for mm -hmm. for this that aren't hip replacements and yes. so the amount of knowledge that we've gained and ability to treat these things has has really grown exponentially over the last over the last decade and and. Mm -hmm really what it what it used to be just to to historically what it was was you know we had a really good treatment for hip arthritis mm -hmm. starting in the 1970s 
and people would do fantastically well with their hip arthritis, but we really didn't understand exactly why they were getting it. And yeah, there were some papers that sort of, that sort of alluded to these deformities in the hip, but Mm -hmm. really that didn't become sort of a mainstream um, understanding until, or or at least we didn't really know what to do about it until more recently and until sort of the late nineties, early two thousands, when there was a group with Dr. Gans in Switzerland that started doing these open procedures where they would take the hip apart and and reshape it and put it back together um, in order to hopefully prevent arthritis. And and then we started doing this arthroscopically in the sort of the 2006, 7, 8 range when when I first started my own practice and and started seeing really, really great results with that. And, And so now I think we have a pretty good handle on treating impingement that's that's we predictably can do that very very well the the challenges i think now are these people who don't really know why they're having problems so there's other problems such as dysplasia which are, are hard to treat through the uh, arthroscopically because it just has to do with with the socket being too shallow and so then those people which is a pretty small subset, but it's a real subset. Mm-hmm. You have to be very careful with those people because what they really need is a big open surgery to give their socket more depth. Um, and then there's these sort of in-between folks that are sort of tough to deal with on uh, who have a lot of sort of micro instability in their, in their hip and they're not really supporting themselves with. They don't really have dysplasia. And some of their instability might be from impingement, but we really need to sort of think critically about those people. Is some so, of that just like quality of the tissue? Some of it's quality of the tissue for sure. Yeah. And some, some of the, you know. General uh, laxity. General laxity. And so some of this, I think, and, and in some patients too, will have a, the labrum itself will be a big pain generator. And so one of the things that I've done um, probably as much as anybody in the world is, is what's called labor reconstructions where we'll mm-hmm. take out a labrum that's sort of worn out and reconstruct it with a graft that is, um, that is going to be more stable and not have the same sort of pain generating inflammation generating effect as the, as the native labrum did. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and we've had a cadaver graft. It's a cadaver graft. Yeah. yeah. And so what we'll do is we'll take basically, um, the IT band, which is that that band that goes up and down your leg, as you know, that um, uh, some uh, and it's sterilized and processed, and then we can we can take that and make it the right size and shape and put it in arthroscopically. And actually, in our patients, we've found we'll typically do that in a tougher patient setting, meaning that the the patients a lot of times will have had previous surgery or the mm-hmm. and they're um, generally older and and on average. Um, and we've found that we can get just as good improvements on our outcome scores That's in those great. patients as we can in our labor repair patients. So I think uh, we're getting to the bottom of some of this stuff that we can offer people um, more and more um, solutions to tougher and tougher problems. But the, yeah. the problems that are harder still are going to be, you know, arthritis, which we have a great treatment for, but it unfortunately involves replacing your joint. Right. Um and then, you know, dysplasia, which involves a bigger surgery, you know. And so um, I think those are the, um, but for things that aren't those, that aren't those two categories, I think we have, we've come so far and it's really cool to sort of be a part of that. And, yeah, it really so, is fascinating. Yeah. And in terms of, I guess, some of the earlier labor repair surgeries that you've done that maybe 
maybe the bony reshaping wasn't done or maybe the technique wasn't quite where it is today. Are you seeing some of those patients in now and doing the label reconstruction on those or is that not yeah a, is that not something that's happening? It's so I think that once people are once generally what you'll see is even um, in in patients who haven't maybe had the, the, the optimal state-of-the-art thing done, if they get past mm-hmm. their initial six months or a year and they're pretty good, the, the re-injury rate is, is not even that, is not particularly that high. That's great. Um, okay. And so, you know, sometimes just enough was done. And, mm-hmm. and, and so usually when people fail, it's usually early and, mm-hmm. and, and you'll, you'll see it and, um, and, and you'll say, well, okay, what, what is it that that could have been maybe done better here and maybe inside and sometimes it's a surgical issue and sometimes it's a you know you know sometimes it's a patient uh just doing too much issue or what have you and so it's um it's multifactorial but and 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 sometimes you just don't know and and you try to you try to assume assume that the least intervention to get them the most better and give them time to sort of because some people just come along slowly too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. You know, people rehab at their own rate, that's for sure. Uh, and I guess some, some things that I've heard about more recently and some of the classes that I've been to, talking a lot more about injections in the hip and like under ultrasound in yeah. terms of like tendinopathies or in different places through the hips, is that something you're doing a lot of or seeing a lot of in yeah. terms of diagnosing or treatment can you just talk on that a bit yeah so the injections i the the way that i use them is is both with diagn to help diagnose and to help treat sometimes and and because a lot of times we just can't figure out you know is this mostly coming from inside the hip or outside the hip right in terms of pain generators in terms of what the pain generator is and and so if it's um and so a lot of times you know i'll use the ultrasound in the office to say all right well People come in and they'll say it's definitely my piriformis, or mm-hmm. you know, it's along my butt, or whatever. And, and we'll we'll say, all right, well, we'll inject right along that. And if they get better, then we say, all right, well, I guess that was that. Other times, and what we see actually more commonly is is people will have these pains that may be more on the side or in the butt, and or in the butt, or sometimes mm-hmm. in the front, and maybe we'll move around a little bit. And they'll say, I know it's not my hip. And I'll say, well, I think it probably is. And then we'll inject yeah. their hip and it'll get better. Yeah. And they'll say, okay, now yeah. we understand it's from the hip. <laughs> right. Or we just won't know. And we'll, and we'll inject right. it so we can help figure that out. Um, okay. And so, you know, we can do that with local anesthetic or, and or um, corticosteroids or cortisone in, mm-hmm. in those areas. Um, and that can sort of help us understand and sometimes calm things down to, so that people can make breakthroughs in their recovery. And... Um, and then there's other types of injections that I don't do, but there are other folks around who, who will do for like these chronic tendon problems like yes. PRP or stem cells and what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think that, I don't think that that has been clearly defined where those, where the role, right. where the various roles in the various pathologies yeah. are. It, it, maybe down the road. Maybe down the road. And I yeah. think. But I, but I, but I, I have a very open mind about that, and I yeah. think that you know there are. Um, if it doesn't, if it's not going to hurt people, mm-hmm. then, then sometimes you know I'll send people pretty routinely for those. If it's not going to hurt them, mm-hmm. uh, and may help aid the recovery and help mm-hmm. them avoid surgery, you know I think it's a good thing to try. 
you know, right, before uh, jumping to surgery. Right. And if it's not, okay. you know, because very rarely in, is there a situation where I would say, don't try that because you're going to burn some bridge and we won't be able to fix it. Right. You know, usually would say, you know, more often I would say, you know, that, that may be something to try and just see if it works or, mm-hmm. you know what, you have such a bad mechanical problem. You can try it, but I'm going to see you back pretty soon. <laughs> you're so not optimistic yeah, it's going to yeah, do anything. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Very good. Do you have, this was incredibly informative, useful. Do you have anything else you'd like to touch on or talk about right now? Um, I don't think so. I, uh, what did I miss? Did I miss anything? Well, there's, I feel like there's so much to talk about <laughs> in terms of yeah. different injuries related yeah. to the hip. But. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the, the main, I think the main, the main issue is, um, Usually, if it's the thing that I tell people when when I'm talking to people about this is that usually if things are happening all around the hip, mm-hmm. like we were talking about before we started, it, it's there's usually a cause for it, and usually the cause is from the joint. So, if all these random things keep happening around your hip, if it's a you know a, abdominal muscle strain or a hamstring or a groin or whatever. Right. And they or and or they're just not getting better, and mm-hmm. there's no reason a muscle strain should last four months. Right, right. That's going to be a joint problem. That's yeah. going to be there's a, a hip problem. There's a reason for yeah. it, and and yeah. that's when you sort of got to say, well, all right, let's take a step back and think about what might be driving this, because there's yeah. no reason this person should have hip flexor tendonitis for four months. Right. Um, and this is from you know where hip specialists like you, it's so wonderful as a physical therapist to have because we'll get referrals from primary care physicians or other orthopedists who you know operate on maybe a wrist or a hand, and and they'll send for you know chronic hip flexor tendonitis, and and it's really you know to have specialists who do just the hip to refer to. I think has just made a huge difference in the quality of care we're able to give to people as well. Because like you said, anything lasting, a chronic strain of a muscle around the hip or an abdominal strain or whatever it may be, like you just have to think a little deeper. I think that's right. And yeah. and, and um, the, the good thing is, though, is that we also have um, great therapists like yourself to, to sort of thanks for giving us a stay plug. On, stay on top of that. Keep these keep these people together, yeah. you know. Because wow. I mean, a lot of t- a lot of times it is, you know, we'll check it out and say, you know what, you don't, you should just stick with this. Just be be patient with it. It's going to get better. Yeah. And you know, keep keep working with uh, keep working with Dana and, and the team, and, and and you'll get better. Like the woman we saw that I was just telling you about today mm-hmm. that you. You, I thought there was no chance when I saw her 15 months ago that she would be doing an Ironman in the fall that she wanted to do. And I said, well, you can try. Let's try it. And then I saw her today. And she said, I did it. She's like, it was miserable, but I did it. <laughs> she's like, thanks she's, to Dana, I did it. <laughs> she's the, she is not the norm. She is, she is the extreme, but it was pretty amazing. She yeah. surprised us both for sure. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so, yeah. Thank you so no, much, Dr. You. Wolf, for yeah. your time. We really, really appreciate it. No, it was a pleasure. Great.